heading to orgasm for engaged couples. What about, is, is petting a, a word that you use today? You know what that means. That's an old word, and I don't know whether I'm so out of it that you use some other word. Touching one another in sexually stimulating places, that's what I mean. What about petting in casual relations? How far should you go in those relationships? Is masturbation wrong? How shall a single person handle his sexual or her sexual desires? How attractive should questions? Three really good questions, too, that I'll try to answer briefly if I can in, uh, in this order. The first one, why did shame with regard to nudity of one's own body accompany the fall? Let me read the text here in Genesis so that we can get the context. At the end of the event of creation, and I believe the establishment of the institution of marriage at the end of chapter 2 in Genesis. It says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then it's picked up again after the fall, down here in verse 8. They have eaten of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and... Now, God comes looking for them. Verse 8 of Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Strange question to ask, seemingly. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Okay. So, God made this conclusion. Adam was ashamed to be around God because he was naked. God concluded, well, how, how did you come to be self-conscious about your nakedness? And then he asked the only question he could think of as a possible explanation. You didn't eat of that tree, did you? And Adam went to proceed to pass the buck. But the uh, the the point has already been made about about nakedness. This is this is best I can understand what's going on here. That the author wants to make a point about nakedness, unashamed nakedness, then shamed nakedness. And even after, the, after, not only God, but the man and the woman make clothes before themselves after this as well. What's happened? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you study this in class, Tom, about what that was way back when? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think, means uh, the, the knowledge of good and evil is what you get when you are mature. Children don't have the knowledge of good and evil in the Old Testament. Senile people don't have the knowledge of good and evil. You grow up into the knowledge of good and evil. It stands for independent knowledge, the ability to decide what is harmful and helpful for yourself. And therefore, this tree, when it was named the knowledge of good and evil, what God was saying to man is, do not make the choice to be an independent, autonomous human being. If you eat this tree, that's what it symbolizes. 
that you want knowledge that you should be depending on me for, namely the determination of what's right and wrong, good and bad, helpful and harmful. Adam and Eve choose to be God. That is, they choose to have for themselves self-reliance and self-determination. And they give up childlike reliance upon God. And when they do, nakedness becomes uncomfortable. Because nakedness is childlikeness. Nakedness stands for helplessness. Nakedness stands for complete candor before God and man. But that's all wrong now. They have chosen against God, and therefore to be before God as candid, open, no barrier, totally naked, is uncomfortable. They don't want it anymore. No, no. And so they hide. And I think all, I think the, the, the discomfort, therefore, that one feels with nakedness in this passage before God is due to the change that's happened in the heart. There's this contradiction now that they want to hide from God. They have chosen to, not to be children, depending on their Heavenly Father anymore. They have chosen to be like God, as Satan said they could become. Then it distorted their horizontal relationship as well. Once the relationship goes with God and you try to become self-sufficient over against God, then the whole realm of human uh, uh, barriers and walls between human relationships, especially in marriage, that's what's in view here, arises and you don't want to be completely open with each other. Because if you're completely open, then you can see all these foibles and the one thing Adam and Eve didn't want to do was admit they had foibles. They were trying to become like God. And nakedness reveals we are not like God. We're just little children who don't have anything at all to claim. So theologically, uh, that's what I think is happening here in Genesis 2 and 3. Now, um, you could pursue that further. There are all kinds of other things that go into the dynamics of, of how we feel about our bodies in marriage uh, that are that complicate the matter if, but maybe I shouldn't pursue that any further unless you want to raise further question about it to be nude naked with a wife or a husband and relaxed requires humility childlikeness unless of course you are a goddess or a or a a god in other words, there are some few people who are so immaculate, so beautiful, so well-shaped that, that it is a great boast to have a body like that. But that won't last long. A couple of decades, maybe. And then, when you're all saggy and wrinkled, and then, then you're going to have to be humble if you're going to stand before each other content. The second question was, um, I agree that it is useful to acknowledge that we can't help but be motivated by our own self-interest, even concerning our relationship to God. But is it not dangerous to focus on satisfying our own desire for happiness, meaning self-esteem, in our relationships with others, what you describe as horizontal relationships? For are we really able to consider the best interest of those we are attempting to help? If we do this, for instance, we may feel good about doing something for someone, but have failed to consider that they may be offended or hurt in the long run. 
that's a really important question and enables me to make the clarification because I think whoever wrote it is right at this point, especially. Um, is it not dangerous to focus on satisfying our own desire for happiness in our relationship with others? Yes, I think it is dangerous to focus on it. Let me use this analogy to show you what I mean. Uh, it's dangerous to focus on it because it's not good hedonism to focus on it. Um, you will probably short-circuit your ability to enjoy doing good if you're always thinking about the good you're getting from it. If you go into an art gallery uh, to enjoy the art, and you walk through the rooms, and you constantly think about, how am I feeling? How am I feeling as I look at this picture? How am I feeling? Is my heart beating faster? Am I getting a good feeling in my stomach? Is my mind really? How am I feeling? You won't have any good experiences in the art museum. What you need to do is forget about yourself as much as you can and go from picture to picture and be taken into it, be caught up into it, whatever the artist was aiming for you to experience. And I think that's the way it is with people, too. So, a good hedonist knows this, you see. A good hedonist knows that in order to get the most pleasure from a relationship, he needs to forget about himself in the relationship. And therefore, I think this person put his finger right on uh, a, a very needed clarification. So the principle of hedonism doesn't change, but the uh, style or the method by which we get go about getting the maximum joy in doing good or worship, or, I think, does require that we be, try to cease to become so self-conscious. I hope that's what the person was after. And then the third question may be the most important of all, and one that I thought a lot about and talked some with Noel about, recognizing that God also, no, recognizing that God does forgive sin, including sexual intercourse outside of marriage, how can one deal with lingering doubt, uh, guilt, etc.? One of the great problems a person faces who wants to, who wants to talk about this issue to people in your shoes and, uh, say some strong things so that your life in the future will be as happy as possible, runs a great risk of wondering how he's going to come off with all those among you who've sinned in this regard. And my guess is the percentage is significant of those in this room who have had sexual intercourse before you got married. And uh, I asked Noel, what, do you, what can I say in, in my whole effort to, to point out the wrongness of it and the beauty that can follow in marriage without making those people feel all the more hopeless. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Except to say this, and this person has already answered his or her own question, uh, recognizing that God does forgive sin. Jesus, clearly, in relating to people of the the sluttiest kind, held out great hope. Paul was a murderer and was converted. David, an adulterer and a murderer, was converted or was forgiven. Psalm 51. So, there is, there is no sin except protracted hardening of heart that cannot be forgiven. When Jesus died, and this, is, this would be my answer to the question, and, and I'm so glad you asked it because it gives me an opportunity to say what is the most important thing in the world about the gospel, about Christ. 
The cross is at the center of everything. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, there couldn't be any gifts of sex, and there couldn't be any forgiveness of the abuse of sex. He purchased everything. He purchased the gift in the first place, even though the gift was given thousands of years in advance of the purchase, and he purchased the forgiveness that flows, uh, the forgiveness that can be had for disobeying God's word on this matter of sex. So for those of you who look back on a bad experience, and I've counseled with enough Bethel students who've, who've, who've uh, been through it that I know there's a lot of it at Bethel, and, and uh, not all of you are from Bethel either. Uh, those of you who look back on a bad experience, for you, the focus of your life, perhaps even more than some of the others, is going to be on the cross of Jesus, where he bore so much wrath and guilt from God that you can't commit a sin that was too great to have been paid for there. There is forgiveness. And then, But having said that, you will bear the fruits of that sin. It's going to bother you the rest of your life. Bother you not because it, it's, it's going to wreck your relationship to God, but because there will be dimensions or a dimension of sexual fulfillment with a wife or a husband which you won't experience. And I don't know any other way to escape that. There's no way to soft pedal what you've lost. You can still have, I think, a fulfilling sexual experience in marriage. But there'll always be that something. We'll talk about this later when we get to marriage. Noel and I talked about this for an hour coming up here last night, almost, uh, and asked what, what is that unique something that you have in marriage when you gave yourself to nobody else ever before? There is something. There is something. But the fact that some of you won't have that something to give should not cause you to despair before God, nor before the prospect of marriage. But it should hold out to the rest of you who have your purity yet in front of you to maintain, to want to all the more. Now, you want to raise a question there? I think probably we should go ahead because the kinds of questions that raises will come out, I think, in other things that we're going to say. The next question I had was, why does God only approve of sex in marriage? Why did he design it that way? If it's taught in the Bible that that's what he approves only, then now I'm asking the question, why? Now, the first thing I want to say in response to that is, we don't have to have an answer, a full answer to that question in order to obey him. And right here is where lots of the argument takes place among people who want to say it's right in some cases and, and not right in some cases. Uh, even if the answer I'm going to try to give is an inadequate answer to you, the commands are still there. And I just haven't been able to penetrate through to understand the reason for them as well as you would like, or I would like, even. In other words, God does not always tell us the full story about why he commanded a certain thing. There are some commands that seem more arbitrary than others. I don't think this one seems very arbitrary, at least not from my experience. So, the way I tried to answer the question of why God only approves of sex and marriage is to ask a further question, namely, what's the difference between 
a married and a non-married relationship between a man and a woman. And I think there is one fundamental difference. Permanence. Permanence. Eternal commitment. That's what God intended marriage to be. Total, permanent, unending commitment is the key, I think, to why this event is restricted to marriage. And I suggest that hand in hand with the breakdown of the permanence of marriage in our society goes the prevalence of premarital sexual intercourse. Because if young people look at marriage as they grow up and, so, and see marriage as something you go in and out of, something that is not at all permanent, then the uniqueness of marriage as a place for sex is gone. And if it's gone, why wait for it? And that makes sense. So that the more we have divorce, the more young people will be unable to explain to themselves why they should wait for marriage. Where marriage was sacrosanct, permanent, unbreakable, then young people could look at that and say, Oh, well, I guess that is, that's the unique and perfect place for this ultimate sexual expression. And I'll, I see that there's a reason for waiting. But today, marriage is not held in that high regard, and uh, therefore, it's very hard for young people to see any reason why they should wait. If a young couple gets engaged, well, for them, they look around and there's so many marriages breaking up. Well, our, our, our engagement breaking up and that marriage breaking up, what's the difference? So we may as well not wait. But why now? Why permanence? Does permanence make a difference in, in waiting or in making this event of sexual intercourse right there and wrong outside? And I wrote this sentence. Down. It must be harmful for us to give away our most intimate physical expression to a person that we have made no permanent commitment to or received no permanent commitment from. Now that's where there will be disagreement from people who simply don't feel that way. But I think all God's commands are for our good and therefore I think it it's right to say, God must see it as harmful for us to give away our most intimate, physical, and I would add physical, emotional, spiritual expression to a person to whom we've made no permanent commitment and from whom we re we've received no permanent commitment. And try to think of an analogy, see if this helps. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, thinking of, of the truth the word. You can debase the truth of God by dispensing it willy-nilly in any situation, whatever. There are precious things that ought not to be said in certain situations to certain attitudes, people with certain attitudes. Now, I, I take that as an analogy to sexual intercourse. 
Sexual intercourse is a psycho-spiritual-physical pearl which is debased and dirtied when not put in a beautiful velvet container of permanent relationship. The permanent relationship is like a big, beautiful jewel box. And this pearl is made to be set and kept in that box. And if you put it anywhere else, you're going to scratch it or dirty it or ruin it. And I, I couldn't, I left a big half sheet of paper here for me to write some more insights on. They never came. Um, I think if I had more time and I could think about my own psyche and how I as a person am manifested to my wife in that event and how she as a person is given to me in that event, that it would start to become clearer and clearer to me why it's damaging to give that event into a, a relationship that is not permanent. Something is, is risked, something is given away that was not intended to be risked or given to one who will not be yours forever. And that's the best I can do in answering the question why God should have chosen to make that way. I agree, <coughs> I agree with you, but is there a difference between, say, a one night stand is someone you have no attachment to at all and say a permanent well not a permanent but a, but a relationship that you get emotionally mentally and physically involved that which may continue over say months or maybe years and then break up you mean that you are intending that it might break up from the start no 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 you don't know I mean you get you enter into a <coughs> enter into a relationship not knowing where it's going to go and you and you 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 know you go all the way, and it's a permanent. It's not a permanent relationship, but you develop a relationship out of that. You see what I mean? And get emotionally involved with that person, mentally, and your whole life kind of revolves on that person. Then you split. Okay? Is there a difference between that and just say a one night stand where there's no emotional commitment at all, and it's just like you using her and she using you, mm-hmm. and then the act is still committed, but obviously one would cause more damage than the other. I'm not sure which would cause more damage. You're right. There is definitely a difference between them, and the emotional intertwining of the persons would become ever more complex. So that probably the longer relationship would be the more damaging. It's just a guess that that the more the more you share of yourself, and the more you become like one, and then you wrench and rip what God intended to be permanent apart, that the damage would be very great, probably, than if you committed a one-night flame. I mean, that's damaging enough, but probably the latter would be even more. What's the damage would be less than if you were able to still remain close friends and still be able to share things? No, I don't think so. Not if you tried to get married then and maintain that friendship. I think that the damage, this is what we were talking about, that, that something that you give, that you have to give when you have never given it to anybody else, makes the event of sexual intercourse in marriage utterly unique. There is a peace, you can help me here maybe, trying to remember the way you put it, Noel, a peace and a freedom and a contentment and an absolute abandon and purity as you lie there when you're all done that you could never have 
if it kept going through your mind that I gave this away before. Especially if it was a good friend next door. Even if you weren't thinking about the fact that you've done it before, I don't think those feelings would emerge because it wouldn't, the act wouldn't be something you mean. It would just have become somewhat commonplace. So that there would be no, I just don't think those feelings of peace and belonging and contentment and rightness would even come. Yeah, you might, in other words, you might not even know you're missing something. Um, somewhere in these notes, I have the question posed about engaged couples who consider their relationship permanent. We'll have to address that. Uh, yes, I see it here. It comes right after, right as part of this next question. But I don't want to rush on if there's... So my answer, my answer to the question, why did God command that we wait for fulfillment of our sexual desire till marriage, is that there is something about this intimacy and this shared event that makes it harmful if it is not shared in a relationship of permanence, a relationship of committed permanence. And, and I... I don't know how it is with you, but my guess is that for most of you, as you just analyze yourself and ask, when would I delight most to give myself in that event? It would only be to a person who is saying to you at that moment, you are mine, I am yours forever. Instead of saying, well, tonight, maybe, but maybe not tomorrow. You know how many songs have been written on the radio about Monday morning or something in which... They're going, and uh, boy, do those songs leave me hollow inside. You can't help but feel outraged at how it has been disgraced by Satan, and how he worked to ruin you as a person and rob some of the gifts, some, that, some of the gifts that exactly. God in the name of pleasure, he would rob us of the of some of the highest joys possible. He knows what he's doing through right. And we, and you know, in the, I just was reading Ephesians yesterday in preparation for this. And Ephesians and several other places, I think it's First Peter two. You see the word deceitful lusts. You ever pondered why why deceit why they're called deceitful? It's because they got the lie of Satan in them. Namely, go for the fulfillment of this tonight and you'll have happiness. Just like he said to Adam and Eve. You'll have happiness. This is it. It's where it's at. And it's a lie. It's a deceit. Because in that immediate gratification, something very lasting and infinitely more fulfilling is, can be lost. Bruce, um, I almost hear you saying that God, or there's something about it that is inescapable, that you're going to have guilt um, if you have sex before marriage, especially with someone that you don't end up marrying. Um, you believe God intends you to continue to have guilt, and if so, why is this situation so unique to many of a number of other sins? Yeah. I, I wish I could make the distinction. Uh, maybe I can't, but I've tried to make the distinction between lingering guilt before God 
and the lack of the total fulfillment of the experience. Now, I want to say we can have complete freedom that God is not against us for this anymore. It is wiped out. God does not hold it against us. We're his precious child. But we have a, it's like a scar. If, if, if we got a cut in doing sin, some sin, we got into a fight and we're outraged and we got a cut, we keep, I don't think God would take away that scar on us. And yet if you were a, let's say you got it here, and you were, you were a, a, wake, uh, a stewardess on an airplane and got this gash across your face because you did something wrong, God would forgive you for that wrong. But the gash is going to stay right there and they probably wouldn't let you keep your job. You'd be too ugly. I don't know whether airplanes are like that or not, but most stewardesses are pretty. Um, say you were worked for a modeling agency. Or um, so the scar's there, and, and it's going to wreck your job. That job. It, and it isn't, and it isn't like that with sex. In other words, God's going to forgive the sin of our past, the sins of my past, and but in the experience of that moment, it's probably like Noel says. You really won't know what you're missing. It won't be that you, you, while you're doing the act, you have to constantly be battling and thinking that you once gave this away and shoot you wish you hadn't. That might be a struggle for a while, but you can probably get over that. But there might be another experience that Noel and I were trying to put into words last night that you won't know you're missing it because you just don't experience it. It's impossible to experience because you gave it away. You, you, can't have, you can't taste it and, and miss it because you never had it. You never gave yourself first and only in a permanent relationship. And so you can't experience it. You can't have the maximum. There's something, there's something precious about a relationship in which you share something that no other person has with you except that, that person that relationship. And you can think about it in smaller ways, too. Maybe you had a support relationship with nobody else. And there will be dimensions of uniqueness to a marriage even that was preceded by premarital intercourse. In other words, there will be lots of, of uniqueness and intimacies that you gave to nobody else. But one will be missing. Well... Yeah, I'd like to know where you cut this off. If you say, um, you talk about the uniqueness of the marriage situation, um, and yours seems to be cutting it off at the sexual intercourse level. Um, yep. What about, like, say, really close relationships you had where um, you might have kissed a, a, a girlfriend and that's all you've done? Say, in high school or something like that, <clears throat> how does that relate? And then, um, secondly, like, um, or uh, let's say different intimate relationships that you've had like that. Um, and then secondly, in the patriarchal marriage in the past, or maybe, the, uh, maybe I'm, that's not the right expression, but um, when the parents used to give the children to each other and they didn't know what they were like, that seems to be to, be, to me one of the, the better ways of doing things. <laughs> because you don't um, you don't have to go um, and 
<coughs> look for particular qualities or attributes that you like and settle for what you have. And it seems to be more of a, a loving situation. Maybe. Maybe. Well, yeah, maybe. But anyway. Well, the first question is a good one, and, and it's one we're moving to right here. So I think I'll go ahead and do it. The second one really wasn't a question, was it? You're just observing that it might be nice if that's the way our society were. There's no possibility that that will happen in, in our culture anymore. Uh, where, it, where it was culturally accepted, sure, it worked fine, and it, it avoided lots of problems, lots of problems that we have to cope with. The whole dating game was avoided. The whole premarital waiting period was avoided if they if they put these two kids together early enough it was uh, but there's no point in wishing for something that could never be in a in society like ours we have to go the route of of falling in love <laughs> which has its its wonders and its terrible problems when when you're forced to wait does this rule out my argument from permanence, does it rule out now petting to orgasm? In other words, short of sexual intercourse, uh, can an engaged couple, let's stick with engaged couple here, that is a couple who thinks their relationship is, is on the way to permanence, can they or should they use their hands to feel each other and bring each other to orgasm and sexual climax that way. Is that okay? Short um, of sexual intercourse. Let me preface the answer that I wrote down with this. One, I, uh, I know of a situation right now in which um, a fella has gotten three girls pregnant without sexual intercourse. Now talk to it. Uh, if you wonder how that can be, you just have to use your imagination a little bit, I think, and and the creativity to which people can go in petting. Uh, but don't think that the only way to to become pregnant is that there has to be the actual insertion of the penis into the vagina. There are other ways to get that sperm going rather than that act. But that's uh, that's just a, a far-out warning that I throw up that you should know about. The question should be answered on a, on a different basis, I think. The key to answering that question is the nature of engagement. Uh, engagement in our culture is a step toward permanence and oneness, but lacks the solemnizing personally, spiritually, and legally. That's why we call it engagement and not marriage. It has not been solemnized as permanent. It can be broken with no religious or social stigma. Do we then have a right to engage in sexual intimacy which, if the relationship were broken off, would be a shame to think about in the presence of the other person when you pass in the hall or visit each other as friends, now married, should you do what would be a shame to think of if the relationship were broken off? That would be my way of going about it, I think. 
should you do what, if that relationship were broken, you would be ashamed of passing this girl or this guy as friend in the hall? Now, I think that was the question. Somebody raised that. John mentioned the question about what if you stayed friends. For me, it is almost inconceivable what it must be like for a guy to pass a girl in the hall that he has been sexually intimate with and they are just now friends. Unless they are just playboys and playgirls and they do it all the time. Part of lifestyle. But that they once had a close relationship and they gave it up and yet they have touched each other everywhere they can be touched and kissed each other as deeply as they can be kissed and they just kind of pass each other in the hall and say hi. Now, for, maybe it's just me that my psyche would just be would just shame me, would condemn me. I would feel that 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 girl is me. She became me because those events for me mean we are one. The sentence that guides me is, "You may touch me because you are me." You may have me because you are me. And, and if I didn't have the confidence that it was going to stay that way, boy, would I be, I would be really hesitant to do it, to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, did you grow up in a Christian home? Uh, for me, I didn't. And I was, it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of how you're conditioned. To grade school, senior high school, high school, and and I was conditioned to to uh, not feel that way, and it was it was didn't bother me a bit to be able to maybe uh, make up with that one girl at that party, and then the next party uh, do it with someone else, and and then it just becomes you know you become desensitized, yeah. and you know, what can I do to, to maybe get back to where you're coming from? Because maybe I'm, I, I guess I'm still having that problem of maybe walking down the hall. Not that there is, but especially at Bethel. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? How can I regain something that, that maybe I lost? Can it be regained? Oh, sure it can be regained. And I think coming to a retreat like this is one of the... It's one of the points of a conversation like this. It's one of the points of studying a text like this and asking, how do you sanctify this thing by the word of God and prayer? It's by thinking from God's standpoint that we start to become sensitized to the way he would feel about these relationships. It wouldn't hurt to say, and this is just the way Paul argued in 1 Corinthians 6, my body is the body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, I think. And when I, he used the example of a prostitute, when I go to a prostitute, I make Christ the members of a prostitute. And he, said, and he just says, it's outrageous, you couldn't do that. The same thing would apply to petting, I think. Can, can we take Christ with us into the car, or in the park, or wherever, and do these things? Would Jesus do that with his hands, here with me? I think that would be a helpful question to ask ourselves. Um, I put down here, of course, all engaged couples see it as permanent. But, I would say, 
what I think Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, if it is so permanent that it justifies bringing the other to sexual orgasm, then get married. If it is that permanent, that it justifies that kind of making out or that that length of petting, then get married. And if it isn't so permanent that you can get married, then probably it isn't so permanent to justify that extent of knowing each other. The same question, we just continue with the same question. It's the same kind of principles that are coming. What about petting in casual relations? I was just talking about engaged people there, and this is getting at what you were bringing up. Is there, is there a distinction between... I was giving a survey of Basel that there's a distinction between my petting and, and heavy petting. And I didn't even... To tell you the truth, until two weeks ago, I didn't even know what petting meant. And what some explained to me is, uh, is heavy petting is closed off, light petting is... is I'm not thinking, well, you can define it any way you want. I I don't think you have to take your clothes off to pet heavily, for goodness sakes. You can bring each other to orgasm in a hurry with all your clothes on. They're loosening. Uh, (laughs) So I think that's a silly distinction, take your clothes off or don't take your clothes off. It has to do with what you're doing with your hands, basically, I think. And what I mean by petting is a guy touching a girl at her breasts and in her pelvic area. And she, him. In other words, just touching yourself every place that you're sexually excitable. For some people, that wouldn't have to be very much. I don't think. And you, you can bring yourself to an orgasm kissing. I can, anyway. Uh, and I think that's not unusual, especially, you know, you watch on TV. Uh, the way these people go after each other's tonsils is just... <laughs> I have to turn my head away. I can't take it. You, you. So petting is a, is a very, uh, a very uh, flexible term. It has to do with intensity, not with amounts of clothes and not necessarily even with how much is touched, but what's happening through that event. I think probably... For lots of guys, the first time they ever hold a girl's hand, they'll have an erection, probably, if they're the least bit serious about the girl. And girls ought to know about that volatility in guys. The first time Noel and I went to the beach together, it just about went out of my mind. <laughs> Remember, lying. We were lying there on the beach. We had some funny stories to tell about those early days. If, if you go, if you go out, if you go out, if this is one of your first dates and you think you ought to look at each other a lot, you know, and not turn your back on each other, and you're lying there in the sun, you get cooked on one side because you can't turn the face to the other side. You're looking at each other. All kinds of funny things. I hit her right in the head with my elbow like this when I was trying to put my arm. <laughs> <laughs> Not very expertise. Um, let's see, what did I answer to this question? What about petting in casual relations? By casual relations, I mean non-engaged relations, uh, general dating around. I think that's probably worse than petting 
and heavy petting and engaged couples. Why? Because the private, more sexually stimulating parts of the body are made for reward in a willed, permanent union. The key sentence that I gave a minute ago is, you may touch me there because you have promised never to leave me nor forsake me. You may have me because you are me. We are one in a permanent commitment. That's, I think that's the way we should think. There is a, in other words, there is a correlation between degree of permanence and degree of freedom here in, in the relationship of touching and sexual stimulation. Where that permanent commitment is missing, caressing becomes, doesn't it, depersonalized manipulation. It turns her body or his body into a masturbation device to get a personal, physical thrill. The body ought never to be objectified away from the person, the spirit within it. But we are so made that if you try to turn that moment of caressing into a personal, spiritual experience of caring and love, you will not be able to do it without making promises of faithfulness. We are so made that we cry out for permanence when giving up our most intimate gifts. You will sense it, I think, unless you are very callous and have been have been trained in the wrong way. You will sense it that as you as you give up the more and the more intimate, you want back more and more commitment, more and more promises, more and more permanence. Let me go back to that sentence that I may have gone over too fast. In your kind of experience, Jeff, which is tremendously common in our secular society. What making out from party to party becomes is not personal relations, is it? It's not meaningful, deep, emotional, significant regarding of the other as a person. It's for the thrill. It's just what's done. It's, and that is depersonalizing, objectifying, turning that other person into a device. You could do it with a book. A guy can do it with a book real easy. A book and something that feels like a girl. And probably the girl can masturbate just as well. Just use some kind of movie scene that she remembers or some experience she read about in a book. And they can get the same thrill without another person around. And that's a, that's a wicked thing to do is to use another person like that. And therefore, I think... Uh, Petting in casual relationships is wrong. I don't think there ought to be anything like it, except when the person becomes engaged or something very near to engagement. So the next question I raised was, how far should you go? Holding hands, kissing, hugging, and all this stuff. But question before I move on? I have uh, three questions. This is the first question. Yes, when you... You lose this special thing. Um, the first question is, back in Old Testament times when they had one on life or a wife and a bunch of coffee went through whatever, were they mentioned that special thing? I think well? so, yeah. And then what about uh, even the New Testament provisions are made for people who die and get remarried and stuff like that? Are they also mentioned that special thing? Mm-hmm. I think so. And then... Which, which proves that it's not sin to miss it. See? 
Because if Noel died now and left me with three boys, I'd probably marry again. We've talked a lot about this. Boy, I don't think it would be the same. It'd be good. I mean, if the Lord led me to the right woman, it'd be good. But it would never be the same again. And I wouldn't hold myself guilty for that. See? Oh, and, and so, it, that's a really helpful thing to see. That, that you can be forgiven of that initial sin and just freely acknowledge the sexual relationship I now have won't be quite the same as if I'd never done it without constantly condemning yourself. You can accept that forgiveness and go on from there just like I could accept that the wife I spent the next 20 years with would never quite be the same. I don't think, Mark? Um, the, 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 um, and then was the eternal like that. How do you reconcile that? Okay. <coughs> that year is legal. Yeah, maybe I overstated the case with eternal. Well, you don't, you don't mean eternal in one sense either, but you're talking about Yeah, that, that, that's the problem. I don't have as much problem with that. In other words, I think that if Noel and I live and die, that in heaven we'll know each other uniquely. I don't know what it'll be like, since we'll be like angels and won't marry or give in marriage. But I think she and I will be uniquely related in heaven. I don't know how. But So that doesn't give me a problem. But the remarriage after a death of a spouse, then what is this permanent thought? Yeah, that's why the marriage vows say, till death do us part. So I'll back off on that. Yeah. Oh, yes, you weren't finished. Um, my third question is, if, for example, a husband... And is it fair then to ask for the husband who's lost it to ask for virgin? Robbing her of that. That's an interesting question. If, if he can't experience in that in that uh, sexual intercourse what he might have been able to had he not committed fornication before, can his wife experience it? I don't think it would unless unless she felt resentful about relationships that he had before. But I bet it would. If if they were if they were open about it. In other words, she couldn't help. It wouldn't be there. There are stages here. It wouldn't be exactly the same as if she had given herself away. But she still, as she lay there, would not have the freedom, the absolute complete. Freedom that this event that we just experienced is uniquely ours. Absolutely uniquely ours. She couldn't have that. He couldn't have that. So, yeah, I think he, he will rob her of that. if he, So that when you commit that act, you are not only hindering yourself from what you, the most that you could experience, but hindering your future wife, too, or future husband. So if you've done it, then it doesn't make a difference if she's a virgin or not. Well, that would ju- I think that would just compound the matter. I think, if you go back to your original question, a husband would be highly presumptuous to think that he deserves a virgin if he himself isn't one. It's kind of like that double, the old double standard thing that the guy can do what he pleases before marriage, but when it comes to marriage, he wants to make sure he gets the girl. Well, okay, not deserve them, maybe better word desire. Well, that I don't think is unusual or wrong. <coughs> I... I would sure desire to have a woman who had not given herself to anybody else. I mean, I might be arrogant so to desire, but that couldn't take that wouldn't take away the desire. 
I just think it's very normal for a guy to want a girl who is uniquely his, who has never given herself to anybody else. That's normal. And I've, I've counseled with enough Bethel girls in those six years while I was there to know that that has caused many of them great grief that they don't have that to give to a guy. And they think they've ruined their future marriage. A lot of tears in my office over that, that issue. When, when should I tell him? I love him now. When should I tell him? I spent a whole summer in bed after high school with another guy. That's a toughie. That leads right into my question. How, like I feel like you should be very free and open and very honest about everything. You mean who should? If you're intimate with somebody. If you're, if you're contemplating marriage before you get married. Oh, yes. And I don't feel like you should, like you should go to, you know, you, you should um, tell about everything like that. I do too. Okay. Oh, absolutely. When students ask me, what does it mean to fall in love? I I never know quite how to answer that question because it's like trying to define desire. Uh, But but I had guys come in asking me, how do I know if I'm in love? (laughs) You don't know if you're in love. You're not in love. That's that's my first answer. You're not in love. You know when you're in love. like Cho said, you know that you know that you know. Uh, now, what was your... I was going to say something. Philosopho. Oh, yes. One of the signs that you're in love is that you must know everything. You want everything to be out. That's why you want to take your clothes off with each other. I think in a, in a, in a falling in love relationship, the desire for nudity is simply a reflection of the desire for absolute candor. And if you don't have that desire, something is screwy. Yeah, and I'd like to lead into another question. Um, with the the world image, you know, to, to seek after, um, well, maybe I can question myself, to seek after what is desirable in, in whatever you think is desirable, whether you think it's uh, pure heart or, or someone, okay, let's say a beautiful body or whatever. How does that relate? In, or, or you said you know when you fall in love, so that doesn't relate. Do I don't. No, I don't. I don't know what you're asking. <laughs> you want to hold okay, it? The, the Christian world says, "Go." Or, I mean, the non-Christian world says, "You know, go after what is beautiful." Okay. In you know, in your, in, in your mind too. I don't want to qualify that. Um, but the non-Christian world says. Not to do that. It says to seek for the pure. Okay. Pure. All right. So I, I get mixed up. You. You asking what sort of why should you look for? Pretty one or a pure one? If you know you're in love and it just sort of happens to you, how does having certain standards that you're looking for fit in with just plain old falling in love? That, that what you're asking? How do how does the list of standards fit with this emotional collapse of inloveness? <laughs> well, that's that's probably something we should talk about. Um, falling in love. Don't let me. I've got to maintain my. Any thought here? 
falling in love is a, I think, yes, I think I will say this, is a, an essential prerequisite of marriage in our culture. But not the only one. Okay? Falling in love is an essential prerequisite of marriage in our culture, but not the only one. It's got to be put through the screen of, is she a believer? Number one. Is he a believer? Number one. And a good believer at that. Not just somebody who's going to be a ball and chain around your neck spiritually. Two. Well, I won't give you any more. Just one. One's <laughs> None of the others matter. None of the others matter. That's not true. I was going to say, yeah, but that's, that's but because you see, falling it. in love takes care of most of the others. That's like what I'm trying to get it. The Christian world says none, none of the rest of that matters. None of the rest. Nothing matters, but is she a believer and is she a good believer? But the secular world says, okay, no, that's that's not the only thing that matters. Right. Beauty. Yeah. Okay, but now, that's why I said falling in love is. You won't fall in love with somebody you don't like the looks of. I don't think you will. And if you do, then you don't have to worry about her looks, I don't think. <laughs> because falling in love is that emotional head over heels. I love to be around you. You bring me great pleasure. I delight in you. I want to tell you all. I want to be with you. I want to commit myself to you. You just, you just take me off my feet. That won't happen unless you are at least able to look at her. <laughs> so, what you're saying is, one of the requisites for a dating relationship and for going out with anybody is whether or not she's a Christian and a good Christian. I wouldn't date a number of you. Now that has to do with my view of dating. There, there are other views of dating that just see it as, you know, just, I guess, uh, kind of like a, a collegial relationship. If you work somewhere, you go down and have coffee with the, the guy or the girl who works next to you. Call it, call out a date, or maybe call that a date, and then. They wouldn't have to be a believer. But dating in our society generally has the more technical meaning of, of uh, a social plan get-together for uh, finding out whether there might be more to this relationship. Now, there, you don't have to view dating that way, but that's, that's, the, that's the route towards marriage we've got. It's the only one we've got in this culture. There's no sense in denying that dating is the route our culture has determined for marriage, a route to marriage. And therefore, insofar as we view it that way, yes, we ought not to date unbelievers. You can do other things with unbelievers, but if, if dating takes on that significance of here's where we're opening the possibility that we might discover a marriage partner, don't risk it. It is absolutely crucial that you not move into an engaged and married relationship with an unbeliever, I think. Um, so, in answer to the question, the, how do a list of priorities and this emotional gush over uh, fit together, the emotional falling in love is, is on the list. See, if I have a list of things, there'll be this. She's got to be a Christian. She's got to love me. I have to fall in love with her. And then there might be a few others like uh, we need to have some other priorities. See, when I that number one for me is so all-inclusive because I look for a certain kind of Christian, a certain kind of orientation towards life. Her attitude towards money would be there. Her attitude towards children, her attitude 
towards husband and wife relationships might be there. All those, but if you wanted to, you take those out and make those four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know, how does she view children? How does she view money? How does she view relationships? How does she view travel? How does she view clothing? How does she view housing? How does she, you've got to get all that out and, and make sure that you have a lot of agreement before you can go ahead with that permanent commitment. In answer to the question, how far you should go in, uh, like I said, holding hands could be a massive sexual experience for some people. And they've got to watch it. Um, so, how far, how much you do, how much you touch one another, will depend on partly on your capacity to cope with that. A second thing to say would be, I think there should be very, very little touching in casual dating. Uh, no absolute. It's just very little in casual dating. That is. As you date a girl and then date another girl or date a guy and then date another guy, it just shouldn't, it, I don't think it should be a practice to kiss goodnight. I don't think it should be a practice to uh, put your arms around each other. Those kinds of things, uh, I think, should just, just save them up for that other person that's coming along who then declares him or herself a little more permanently. And then that next step might come with that new declaration of permanence. Um, the more love, here would be kind of a principle, the more love and permanence, the more desire for intimacy. Um, and then I would add th this to help give some guidelines. Touching is preparation for intercourse. Stopping is frustration. Noel and I pulled back off leaving ourselves massively frustrated uh, and yet saying to ourselves to go any further would leave us more frustrated when we finished off that. Uh, so what that means is before you start the progressive touching, and it will always be progressive, you've got you've to say to yourself, this is foreplay. This is foreplay for intercourse. That's the way it was designed. That's what it is. To stop it is like a husband and wife going to bed, working themselves up ready for an orgasm, and the phone rings. And it's an emergency, and they got to quit. You're asking for trouble. You're asking for massive frustration. And the best way to keep from having that frustration is not to begin the foreplay. No sense in, in, in gearing up for the game if it's going to rain. What if even dating them becomes a frustration? I didn't date. I didn't date much. Noelle was the second girl I ever dated, and I met her between my sophomore and junior year in college. And probably for that very reason, I had this, I had this massive emotional readiness for a girl inside of me. From the time I was a junior in high school, I was ready to give myself to a girl, and I knew it. I wanted to get married. And I had no idea where she is or where she'd come from. I dreamed about her a lot. And, and I knew I, I would just, I would fall like a thunderbolt when it happened. I knew it would, that's the way it would be for me. And therefore, no dating around for me. That was high and serious business. And uh, that one other girl was just a walk from the stoop to a wrestling match. <laughs> it was quite spontaneous. Well, you know, you know the kind of pressure that we go through at Bethel, like, I mean, <laughs> the girls say, and like, well, I don't know, but, you know, you 
You shouldn't take me as a model. I'm sure you shouldn't take me as a model. I, I was weird. I just have nothing helpful to say about dating. I was a loser. I don't, I don't, really, I do not want you guys here to say, well, that's the way we should be. No, don't say that. No, that's just the way I was, but because of you, you put your finger on it, namely, uh, for me, dating would, would have been foreplay. You see? Uh, and not necessarily physical foreplay, although I think it would have been, it would have been very sexually stimulating for me, but it would have been simply, uh, a kind of emotional burden on me as a senior in high school, I was no way ready to bear. Because I knew I was not, I did not want to get married when I was a senior in high school. I wanted to get married later, after I was finished with school, or at least well along in school. And yet emotionally I was ready to fall in love if the right girl came along. So I, I guarded myself very much from that whole experience. I looked at lots of girls from afar when I got to Wheaton. She might be the one to start dating with. And that's a funny way to put it. She might be the one to start dating with. Whereas most guys would have said, well, I'll take her out this weekend and, and see what kind of a girl she is. I just stood back and watched her, you know. <laughs> watched her in class, watched the way she related to the stoop, watched her at the ball games, and then nothing came of it. <laughs> now, that's, I'm not saying anything helpful for your Bethel situation. I... John? Yeah? Uh, Somehow you're making it come across like you fall in love with something you can't help. And I think in some cases it's true, but I think at least from my experience, I think love is something you can cultivate and it just doesn't come like this all the time. Sometimes it does. Well, you're right about that, I, and I've learned more about that in counseling with Bethel students than I know from my own experience, because of these guys who come in and tell me, wonder if they're in love yet or not, and why. I look back at my experience, and I just think they're crazy, and yet they're not crazy, because I've seen enough of them to know that they're not crazy. There's just a lot of people like that around who, who, ha who, who get into relationships, and it just grows inch by inch by inch. Some of them I know now are married and very happily married, who, who grew into it like a snail, and instead of a jackrabbit. So, uh, yes, you're right. And that's very helpful for you to point that out. And I'm, I might be wrong in what I said about <coughs> falling in love is an essential prerequisite of getting married. I might be wrong. I, you're, I said in our culture. Now, see, you're not entirely part of our culture. You grew up outside the culture and might have a lot more input that would make that different for you. Um, and I may be wrong about our culture, but I, I counseled a couple the other day not to get married because I didn't think they were in love with each other. And the reason they weren't in love is because there was just lots of mistrust there. And I said to him, I said, look, you make, make this long list of interests that you have that parallel and backgrounds that are similar. But you sit here, and when I interview you separately, you tell me things about each other that you haven't told each other. You don't trust each other yet. You're not in love. I don't think you should go ahead yet. It's got to get it's got to get more intense. Now, maybe I was wrong. I don't think I was wrong. I think they got strike two against them if they go into that marriage not in love. There's enough going against them as it is. 
so that, uh, boy, marriages are hard enough to hold together to begin without being in love in our culture. See, in another culture, you've got lots of supports, lots of expectations from family and society that we don't have. And there better be some powerful personal individual bonding when a couple goes into marriage in our culture or they're going to blow it before they're done. And one of those bondings is this in-loveness that, that I think is, is important. Petting to orgasm will leave you feeling like things deeply inappropriate, fearful of shame if the engagement breaks, like treating each other as masturbation devices, so on. So, what I say is, somewhere in between petting to orgasm and nothing, you've got to find your way. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to draw any lines on the body, degrees of undress. But I think I've said enough things that if you, if you like pour it into your mind and into your heart like a big soup bowl and stir it with the soup spoon of prayer and desire to please Christ, you and your beloved will find the way. If you don't give up that desire to please Christ, you will Check yourself. You will learn, hopefully, that you cannot go that place at that time of night. You cannot go there because it is too easy there. You will stay with people. You won't do this thing. You'll do these things. You will learn what does not put you into the uncontrollable situation. That is, if you desire it enough. Now, I'm going to switch over to masturbation unless you have another question about I'd like to add something. Yeah, go ahead, Nora. I think one thing that uh, can't be taken for granted, even among a couple where both people are is that even when they have an intense relationship with Christ individually, it's important to their relationship together that they have a relationship to Christ together as they're, as they're becoming more intimate and coming closer to a commitment to each other. And, and that, that shading over these decisions you're making about your physical relationship will make, make decisions easier in a way. Mm. Although anything that you're doing that's waiting when you want each other very much is hard. Yeah, that's, that's good. I didn't even, I was thinking so much about that in, in terms of a marriage relation. I didn't even think about it in, in, in a premarital relationship. I, I would say early on, in a relationship of commitment, there ought to be prayer and Bible reading together. Early on. That will really change everything if you're able to do that together. It's hard to go out and do something that your conscience condemns you for a half an hour after you have sat down and prayed and, and read the scriptures together. And that time, that time together is so important for making all sorts of decisions about what your future will be together. Right. Yeah, and that, well, that reminds me of another thing. Namely, to talk about this issue. Don't get into the, into the car parked by the lake with your arms around each other, then trying to make your decisions. Talk about it. Just get it out on the table and say, 
I'm falling in love with you. What does that imply about what we're going to do with each other? Talk. And then, it's going to be much easier in those situations to say, remember what we said? You see, I, Noel and I didn't do that early enough. I had in my head some laws I was not going to break. But boy, short of those laws, uh, we sure needed to talk about lots of other things that we didn't early enough, but then had to in response to things we did. Anything else here, Noel, or anybody else? Deal with it having happened. Yeah, and What what what? How does a girl deal with rape being manipulated into sexual assault? Why do? I've never had to counsel a girl in that situation. I don't know. I think what I would say would depend on the situation and what her, what was actually bothering her now. Where was it getting her since it happened? And I suppose to relate it to things we've said already, what would I say to her? She said, now my sexual life in the future is shot or something like that. I am no longer what I was before and my marriage is now going to be second rate and off. I would talk about forgiveness, first of all, in case she was guilty that she might have provoked this by the way she walked or what she did in the sky or whatever. Uh, talk about forgiveness. Then talk about all these things I've come to see more clearly now about how even though she probably will have a star in future sexual relations, nevertheless, they can be fulfilling. They can be good because of how clean God can make a person and how she in that situation may not bear any guilt at all anyway. Um, but now you, it sounds like in your second question you're thinking about a situation where you're not so much raped in a dark street as you are, uh, you all of a sudden discover that the guy you're with is an animal, a wolf. Uh, boy. I mean, if I were a girl... That that would be, that would be that would be so serious. I I'd do anything to get out of there. I'd pull it. I'd push him out of the car. I'd, I'd uh, you know call for help. I don't think I don't think the call for submission applies. <laughs> 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 uh, use the cigarette lighter. <laughs> 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 you you. Part of the way that I look at that, her question, is that um, in a situation like that, you may not have willing, you don't make a willing decision to give yourself in that way, necessarily. And it's not, you know, it's really, it's the same thing. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. When you're, when you're talking to a girl who's trying to deal with a race that's happened, it is going to be different in our marriage, somewhat. But the, but the big thing that will, that can save any remorse she feels over what's happened, whether, whether she deserves herself to feel remorse or not, is that she did not give herself to that person. And now, in her marriage, she is choosing willingly to give herself to her husband. That's why it's a violation of some you know, kind of decision yes. that you make. Right, that's a helpful distinction that 
Do you want to pursue that any further? Anything else? Is masturbation wrong? I don't know of any biblical teaching on masturbation. Not a shred. Do you? Yeah, that doesn't apply. The, the, the thing that that uh, that fellow is being accused of is the failure to fulfill the law to raise up children to his deceased brother. The Leverett law. You've got to raise up seed. Your, his brother dies. So the law requires that he take his wife. He said to himself, if I take her, I won't have any children after my own name. And so he spills the seed. That is, he ejaculates on the ground instead of into her. And God is so angry to slay them. It has nothing to do with masturbation. Know of any other texts? <laughs> a lot of times we hear, or I have heard anyway, um, they talk about what Jesus said, not to commit adultery in your mind and in your heart. Yeah. And how can you do such things without in your mind? Okay. All right. Now there's something that comes close. You see, my first comment about masturbation, I got a negative thing to say and a positive thing to say, is that, now I'm not a girl, so I know very little about what the masturbation experience would be like for girls. But guys should know that it is not uncommon among girls. Those statistics prove that it is not as common. All of you guys here, with maybe one or two exceptions, have masturbated. I don't know what percentage it would be among the girls. Um, now, the first thing to say about masturbation is it inevitably, I think I can say, except with what is called wet dreams, that is, a guy wakes up and he finds that he's ejaculated in bed and doesn't, know, doesn't remember why. Well, he had a dream, some sexy dream probably, and he just can't remember it. So I don't want to refer to that. But... Other times, conscious masturbation always goes hand in hand with sexual fantasies. The imagination that goes with it is purely sensual, with no real persons involved in the sexual stimulation and no real relationships built up. We are not meant to have sex disconnected with a personal union. Masturbation contradicts the God-intended function of the orgasm, fulfillment, of a personal union. Are you talking about the physical action or are you talking about the mental thought? Are you talking about like a nameless, a nameless person or are you talking about someone... You, I don't think it's possible to masturbate without an imagination. Right, but are you talking about, say, a specific girl that you know or no. just a nameless... Yeah, just in general. It can be a specific person or not, but she's not there. Right. See, it's just, an, it's just a figure in your imagination, whether it's a real movie star that you saw in a movie or some picture of a girl you saw in Time magazine with a net bathing suit on or whether it's something else. That picture you have in your mind that is causing the stimulation now is, is not real. That is, she's not there. She's not a person with an eternal soul. You know her by name. She has cares and concerns in life. She's just a body. She's a thing. And the, the visual or tactile stimulation that you're imagining is is objectifying her. And that always accompanies masturbation. And that's why I think masturbation is in wrong, generally. Now, I was going to relate that to something that was said over here. Yes, that text. You see, now that text, Jesus said, uh, when you 
desire a woman to have her, you've committed adultery in your heart. I think what he's saying there is, if you look at, if you look at a woman, a neighbor, or a movie star, or somebody, and you say, I want to have sexual relations with that person, and would do it if I could, uh, but short of that, we'll go ahead and do it in my mind, I think, yes, I think we've committed adultery, and therefore Jesus would be condemning that act of masturbation. I don't think all masturbation is that. In my own sexual fantasies as a teenager, I was very careful never to commit a fornication. Isn't that interesting? Never did I imagine fornication. So that I had the same law for my imagination that I had when I fell in love with Noel. Never did I imagine committing sexual intercourse. Everything else possible. But never that act. And, so, and, and you know why? Matthew 5.32. Jesus said, you do it in your mind, you've done it in reality. I'm not going to do it. We are living underneath the law, though. Well, it's underneath the law. I don't think when Paul condemned people for being under the law, he was, he was saying that they're trying to keep the law. Be under the law means to be saved by, trying to be saved by self-effected obedience to the law. I don't, I don't think I would. I may have been guilty of that. But I don't think necessarily that I was. I think we ought to lay down pretty hard lines for ourselves in our imagination life. I think mine were pretty shoddy. Uh, but I have some now. And, and I'll talk about those in a minute. That I, I just have, I have some walls beyond which I won't let my imagination go if I, if I can help it. So, my first, my first general statement about masturbation is that it's generally wrong. And uh, the reason is, one, because it objectifies and depersonalizes the people in our imagination. It, see, that may have been another reason why I didn't date much in high school. I had these, I had these pictures of naked women in my imagination so often. It was terrible. So that it was hard for me to view girls as persons. And that article that's been going around, I think, gets at that. Pornography in our day has made it nigh on to impossible for a guy to view a girl as a person. Because even, even in non-pornographic literature, advertising especially, what they want you to look at is the little part of the body that's exposed, the little slit in the skirt, the second button that's unbuttoned. Look at that and imagine what would happen if the wind blew. That's what the picture says. And you can't help but do it. And so, and so the, the people who know bodies and are running our, our magazines and our newspapers and our, especially our movies, they know how to get us. And they're after us with all they can to uh, lay hold on, on the human, on the, on the male eyeball and groin. Um, second or third, I don't know which it is, thing I would say is that masturbation doesn't solve the problem for very long. It, it's one of those uh, things you, you think you're going to let off some sexual steam and get some gratification and... It happens, and then how long before it's all there again? The same old problem. It can be there again in ten minutes. If you've got the right stimulation and a good imagination, uh, might take a day sometimes. You can, imagine, you can masturbate every day without any trouble. It just It's not a solution to the problem of sexual power or, or uh, need. And the more that it becomes a habit, 
I think the more guilt there will be. The other reason I mentioned that I skipped over, that depersonalizing of the person in the imagination, and it's hard to view. I'm talking mainly about guys now because I know about that better. Uh, makes it hard to view women as persons when you're always thinking about them as sexual objects. Um, the other reason is the actual event of sexual stimulation uh, contradicts why we have orgasm given to us by God. God gave us orgasm for sexual intercourse and all that accompanies it. And, then, and you don't want to turn your wife into a pillow or anything else that you might use to make that stimulation. You want your wife to be a person and this one act of sexual intercourse to be part of a statement to her, an expression to her of love. Masturbation shoots that whole thing down the tubes by turning the orgasm into something very mechanical. Freud, that's Freud's first name, Carl Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud said he got more sexual pleasure out of a bowel movement than from an orgasm. Which, which, uh, you think about the implications of that. Let me say, let me try to say one more thing about masturbation. I think it would be the lesser evil if it were the only way to maintain continence or chastity. I asked, I was, I was at a pastor's retreat, you know, a few weeks ago, and I asked every one of those guys at my table, I said, look, i got to go talk to college students about some of the things I don't have any answers for. You think it's always wrong to have masturbation? <laughs> you know that none of those pastors would say yes, it's always wrong. None of those eight pastors at that table would say it's always wrong. Isn't that interesting? Um, a couple of them gave me the reason that they thought of marital situations in which it was the only way there could be sexual uh, fulfillment. Let's see, what was the example one gave me where a wife was out of commission for some reason due to health? No pregnancy. Yeah, but the, the, I think the problem with, with uh, Noel and I were talking about this too, about what about paralytics in marriage? Somebody who's paralyzed from the waist down and feels nothing. Um, um, how do they get sexual satisfaction? Well, th- this comes in later about, about uh, various things you can do in marriage. Are there any limits? So I'll save that until it's happening later. But the, the question of uh, when you're pregnant and you can't, you can't, uh, the doctor says don't do it anymore. What do you do then for six months at the most, say, five months? Well, there, there can be mutual stimulation there. Well, 